Hey, welcome to Cross Creek On Demand. We are so glad you are here. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor. We created Cross Creek to be a church for people who don't normally go to church. And so we've designed our Sunday environment, including our online environment, to be a safe place where people can discover God's love for them. We would love to connect with you when you are ready. Go ahead and scroll down and you can click ask a question, ask for prayer. Maybe you could find out how you could get here on a Sunday evening to join us live. But we would love just to be a part of your journey in discovering God's love. When you're ready, we would love to see you in person. Until then, why don't you go ahead and click subscribe so you can be updated on Cross Creek's most recent messages. Thanks for joining us. Good to see you guys. Good to see those of you who slipped in during the music time. Good to be seen by you online. Thank you for watching wherever and whenever you are. We are, you're joining us for part five of a series we are calling Discovering God. And if I sound a little bit different to you, those of you who are used to hearing this voice for a good 40 minutes every Sunday, it's because I'm dealing with some allergies. So there might be a little bit of, uh, you know, this. <coughs> Unmute, see? See how seamless that'll be? You guys will be fine. You won't catch anything, and we'll edit it out online, so you'll be totally fine. So if that happens, you know what's going on. I'm not dying. But so we are, we're discovering God, and here's our premise that we've been kind of working with for the last few weeks, and it's this. What we think we know about God, wherever we grew up, however we grew up, whether we grew up in church, whether we grew up in a different religion, whether we grew up with no religion, we all have these different ideas of what the word God means and what that kind of brings to mind and the connotations that might have. And so what we think we know about God often keeps us from actually discovering God because we have all these preconceived notions. So when somebody says a certain like phrase about God, we put all these different, different levels on it, different meanings to it, and it might not even be what that person meant. And so we're kind of trying to unpack what does it mean to discover God? Who is God? Not what is God. I'm not trying to learn all these different facts about him, but who is he? We, we've been seeing that he's a personal God that cares about us, that knows us, that sees us. He's not just some force that got things running and then left us alone and doesn't care. He's not just some, some thing out there waiting to smite us, but he actually cares about us. He knows us. And so we're trying to kind of clear the fog of what we think we know about God and actually discover who God is. And when we talk about God, there is one word that I think is the most misunderstood and often misused word. And it's usually misused by people like me standing on a stage like this in a building like this on a day like today. Are you excited for that? And it's this word, and if you're watching online, please do not change the screen when I say this word because this is what you're expecting me to say, but we'll explain it. The most misunderstood word when we're talking about God is sin. Did you feel that air just come out of this room? Sin is the most misunderstood and misused word when we're talking about God. And it's, it's a funny word because it's not a word we really use anywhere else but in religion. Right? It's not like you were growing, well, maybe you grew up in a very religious home, but usually when you're growing up, your parents aren't usually like, hey, you're grounded. Why? Because you sinned. Hey, uh... Gary, I need you to come into my office today. Your boss is calling you into the office. I don't think anybody of you are named Gary unless I haven't met you yet. Hey, Gary, come, come, come into my office. Close the door. We need to talk about your sins. Right? That doesn't happen at work. Your principal was like, hey, you have sinned and now you have detention. We don't use that word 
unless we're talking about religion. And it's an uncomfortable word. It makes us feel ill at ease. It's a heavy word. It has this, this feeling of guilt with it. It has this, you know, like impending judgment, right? You've sinned, done, final. You're going to get it. You asked for it, and now you'll get what you asked for because you sinned. And so we try to explain it away, right? We're uncomfortable, we're uncomfortable when you hear that word that we've sinned, and so we try to explain it away. Sometimes we make it sound like, you know, um, you know well, we're only human, right? Of course, of course we've sinned, but, you know, every, everyone messes up. We almost, almost make sin out to be like this accidental thing that we kind of tripped into, right? I don't know, I've never heard of an accidental affair or an accidental robbery, Right? Never heard of accidental lies or accidental judgmental attitudes towards friends and coworkers and people in the grocery store. It doesn't just happen by accident, does it? You say, oh no, I was, you know, I, I, it, was, I, it was just, an you know what an accident is? <laughs> well, if you're potty training kids, you know what an accident is. <laughs> but they didn't mean to, right? Or it, it, when you're working on your math homework when you're in school, an accident is something you, you mess up on your arithmetic and you go back and you fix it. That's, that's an accident. That's a, that's a mess up. That's not sin. See, what do, you, what do you call an accident you do on purpose? Not an accident. Right? And so when we say sin, I think it makes us un- uncomfortable because when you really look at it, we've all sinned. And the way we explain sin is really this. It's, it's breaking the law of love. Jesus said there's, there's two great laws with God. Love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of love. Those are the two laws Jesus said were the top things. If you get those right, you're good to go. Love God, love others. Raise your hand if you are 100% always loving others in everything you do. You're not, right? Think about it. If you did something unloving, no, something selfish, even a selfish thought, right? We've all had that. Judging somebody with your thoughts. If you only did that three times a day, like maybe you didn't leave the house that day, right? You didn't try to drive on I-5. So you only had those thoughts three times a day. I got to look at my notes because I did the math. Three times a day for a year. You know how many times, how many sins you would have in a year? 1,095. Don't look it up. I already did the math. 1,095 times you've been unloving. You've broken the law of love. Now, if those were parking tickets, would the judge let you go very easily? 1,095 parking, 1,095 speeding tickets. Oh, yeah, but, I, you know, it was, it was an accident. My, my foot got heavy. 1,095 times? See, we know what we're doing. No. No, it's not an accident. It's on purpose. See, we are sinners. See, what do you call somebody who speeds 1,095 times? A speeder. We call somebody who lies one time? A liar. What do you call somebody who only sins three times a day? A sinner. We're all sinners. And here's the fun part. It's going to get better, I promise, but stick with me. Here's the fun part about sin. You can't make up for it. 
Once it happens, it happens. Once you, once you lie, you've lied. Take it to the extreme. Once you murder somebody, saying you're sorry does not bring them back. It is done. You can't do anything to make up for it. You can try, but you can't. You're stuck. It's, the, the example I, I like to use for this is, you know, my, my wife loves to make cookies with my kids. And they, you know, they take turns pouring in the stuff and licking the, the flour with only eggs in it. You know, it's disgusting. It's like, at least put the, sh- no, ooh, butter, huh? Right? It's gross. Anyway, so let's say my, my kids are making chocolate chip cookies with my wife. And uh, Danny, who is our six and a half year old, our oldest, is breaking the eggs, right? We're like, he's the big boy, he gets to do the eggs. And he's, this recipe called, I've never made chocolate chip cookies that I can remember, so let's say it takes five. Does it take five eggs to make chocolate? How many eggs? Two? You need to make more cookies. Let's say there's, we're making a double batch, okay? So f- at least four eggs. And you put the first egg in, and, and you know, it's a regular egg, it's great, no shell or anything, good job, Danny. Second egg, great. Third egg, awesome. Fourth egg, it's rotten. And it smells, and it just fills the house. Not our house, which is pristine and on the market, by the way, but anyway. <laughs> okay, you know, good, you've been on social media. <laughs> anyway, so this egg, it's just, it's rotten, it, it ruins the whole, the whole smell of the house, it just, like, everybody has to run out, and you turn on the, the fan and everything. Now, are we going to keep making those cookies? Oh, but there were three good eggs. There's only one bad egg, right? The good outweighs the bad. What's wrong with the cookies? Oh, we haven't put the sugar in yet. We haven't done, put more good stuff in it, right? Well, let's do, let's do the white sugar and the brown sugar. Oh, vanilla, that's what's going to make this better, right? Put all these good things in. Are you going to serve those cookies? No, you're not. <laughs> that's disgusting. Because that one rotten egg has ruined the whole thing and you can't go in and take it out, it's there. That's how sin is. No matter how much good you put on top, it's still there. We can't do anything about it. We're stuck. And here's the truth, and here's maybe one of the reasons this sin word is so uncomfortable. Truth is, God hates, yes, hates sin. He hates it. Why does he hate it? Because it separates us. It separates us. I mean, it separates us from ourselves, right? We can't be honest with who we really are, with what we've really done. We don't really want to look deep down in, in what's in our heart. So we kind of separate from ourselves. It separates us from each other, right? Maybe you see that person that you wronged and you feel guilty. And now there's this rift in your relationship. And it separates us from God. We, we now think he's mad at us and he's, and he's going to judge us and we have this guilt. And so even if we, maybe we, you know, we're, we used to be a praying person and then we have this sin and now we feel like you know, we can't even, can't even talk to him because we're trying to hide ourselves, trying to cover ourselves, trying to put on this nice face for everybody. What, and here's what we think we know about sin. Here's what we think we know about God. Since God hates sin, he hates sinners. And he's angry. And really, we're just, every breath we take is just testing his patience. Every time we step out of his lines, he's waiting to smite us. He's ready to judge us. Obviously, he won't accept me. Obviously, he won't, he won't keep me in his family. If I don't clean up my behavior, he'll never let me in, or he'll, he'll probably just kick me out. 
That's what we think we know about God. But the good news is this. Here's the, here's the actual facts. God's love is not based on our behavior. God's love is not based on our behavior. And that is so, we can say it, right? We can say we believe that, but to actually live that out, to actually even, even feel it, to actually have it be part of your life, so much harder. And so you might not believe me with how you, how you view God, that his, his love is not based on our behavior. You might not believe me. And so what I want to do tonight is look at one of the most famous historical characters recorded in the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Somebody you've probably heard of, most likely, maybe you've used it in you know, some, some cultural setting or whatever, but David. We're going to look at this, this guy named David, a man that is described as a man after God's own heart, right? The giant killer, David and Goliath. You've heard, maybe you've heard of that. This, David was given everything someone could hope to have. He was given wealth. He was given power. He was given prestige and reputation, fame. He even wrote part of the Bible. But there's another side to David. A man who squandered amazing potential. A man with some serious anger problems. Like, I'm going to kill you. Like, literally kill you, anger problems. He was a failed husband. He was a terrible father. He was a selfish king. He was an adulterer. And he was a murderer. But he never lost God's love. In fact, when we look at David, and we, we're going to look at him in a minute, but when we look at this, this, character, this guy that interacted with God and lived thousands of years ago, here's what we see. God's love and forgiveness has no limits. God's love and forgiveness has no limits because it's not based on who we are. It's based on who God is. And as Jesus' best friend once said, God is love. So we're going to look at the story of David, and we find it in, the, in this historical account of ancient Israel called First and Second Samuel. Last week we talked about a lady named Hannah, who, who couldn't have kids, but God saw her, and it was, you know, back in those times, it was, it was pretty shameful for women not to have kids, this whole cultural thing. So she begged, she prayed to God, see me, let me have kids, and her firstborn son that God gave her was named Samuel. And so we saw that last week. And Samuel grows up and he becomes a prophet of God, one who speaks to the nation of Israel on God's behalf. He becomes a judge of Israel, not like you're guilty, but like kind of leading all the tribes of Israel and saying, hey, here's, here's the way we're going. And as Samuel grows up, Israel, the nation of Israel, the, the leaders of Israel, the elders, say, hey, we want to be like everyone else around us. We want to be like the Philistines and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Parasites and the whateverites are out there, right? We want to be like all these other ancient cultures. We want a king. We don't want just some prophet telling us what God says and some judge that comes every once. We want a king. We want to be a kingdom. And so God says, all right, Samuel, go, go find this really big, not too bright, strong guy named Saul and make him king. So Samuel does. And Saul screws it up and becomes a terrible king. And so God says, you know what? Saul, you're not the guy. Samuel, I got a mission for you. And here's what God tells Samuel. 
The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Quit moping around and get to work. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. We talked about Jesse a little bit two weeks ago. when We talked about the city of Jericho and how the Israelites conquered it and how there was a lady named Rahab who was not an Israelite, who, who, who barely knew who God was, but God rescued her and saved her. And she became a full member of the Israelite family. Well, Jesse is Rahab's great-grandson. Okay, so that's how that kind of fits into the story. And so God sends Samuel to Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. And Jesse says, hey, you, you seven older sons, come see Samuel. Because Samuel's here. He's, he's doing something. You know, he's, he's looking for maybe a leader. He wasn't so sure about the, if he was looking for a king or not. And so he had eight sons, but he only brought in the, the seven. He said, the youngest, you know, he's, nobody really wants to see this guy. He's short. Nobody likes that. He's, you know, he's, he's different. He's always hanging out with sheep. Let's just let him stay with the sheep. He's more comfortable there. He's not really good in front of crowds and important people. So leave, leave him at home. And so Jesse brings his seven older sons in front of Samuel, and Samuel kind of looks at them one at a time. The first one's strong and handsome, and said, oh, this is obviously going to be Israel's next king. And God's like, no. Why would you look at the outside? That's what you did with Saul. How'd that work out for you? Right? And he, he looks at the next one. God says, no, 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 no. All the way down to the seventh one. And Samuel says, turns to Jesse and says, is there anyone else? Like, I was told to come to you and... and and anoint one of your sons king of Israel, are there any other sons? And Jesus say, like, oh yeah, that, that youngest one. Somebody bring him. So he comes. His name is David. And God tells Samuel, he's the one. Anoint him. Make David the king of Israel. Now here's the thing. Why did God pick David? I don't know. I don't know why God picked David. He's the youngest Usually you, you go with the oldest in those times. He's not even part of the royal family. Why is he going to be the next? His own family didn't even think him important enough to invite him to dinner. Yet God said, hey, you're going to be king of Israel. See, here's the thing. Our qualifications don't qualify us for God's love. God's love has nothing to do with what we bring to the relationship. God's love has nothing to do with what we contribute to the world. It is not based on what we can do. So Samuel anoints David king. There's just a problem. There's already a king. Like we talked about, Saul. He doesn't share power lightly. And so David goes into Saul's service. He becomes an armor bearer. He basically fights alongside Saul. And then there's this big battle Maybe you've heard of it. I mentioned it earlier. David and Goliath, right? You have this giant that is threatening the armies of Israel. Everyone's crying in their beds. Saul's hiding in his tent. And David, little David says, why is everybody afraid? This, is, this guy's challenging the God Almighty, the God who created the universe. I think we can handle him. And so David goes, fights Goliath, knocks a stone in his head, and then cuts. This is the, for me, as, as a guy who grew up loving this stuff, this is the best part of the story. My kids knew this part of the story when they were three, which is why they're probably a little different. Stone hits Goliath. Goliath falls over, over. David runs as fast as he can to Goliath, pulls out Goliath's own sword, and cuts off his head with his own sword. Isn't that awesome? The deeper voices said, yep, interesting. <laughs> 
So David kills Goliath, and he becomes this national hero. All of Israel knows David. All of Israel is like, David is the man. David is like the cream of the crop. Saul's killed some guys. He's, he's all right, but David, whoa. Saul was an insecure leader. He became very jealous of David. In fact, he tried to kill David on a couple of occasions. He hunted David. David had to run for his life. In fact, one time, David, David had to run without any supplies, get away from Saul. Saul's son, Jonathan, had warned him. He, he runs off. And he goes to a place called Nob. And Nob was a city of priests, priests to God. And so when, when David gets to, to these priests, he says, hey, I need, I need food, I need provisions for my men. And he lies. He says, I'm on a mission for Saul. Right? The, the king sent me and we need supplies. Will you, will you please help us out? And interesting enough, David didn't have weapons or anything, and, but Goliath's sword was at this, at this town. And so they gave him Goliath's sword. So now he's fighting. It's a pretty cool story. You should read it. It's in the Bible. Anyway, so he lies with these priests, he goes off on his, on his way. Problem is, Saul hears about it. Saul hears that these priests at Nob helped David, who he sees as an enemy. And so what does Saul do? He goes to that city and kills every single person in that city. Men, women, children. Why? Because David lied. All those lives were because of David's lies. And here's what happens. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, these are the, one, one of the priests, don't worry about the names, named Abathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, this is the guy who kind of spilled the beans to Saul, I knew he would, he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. David knew there was a guy who was loyal to Saul there when he came to, help the priest, or when he came to the priest to ask for help. He knew word would get back to Saul, and he still did it. So he says, tells him, stay with me, don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. Oh, isn't that sweet? <laughs> David gets this guy's whole town, his whole family, everything he's ever known, killed. And so he tries to make up for it by saying, hey, hang out with me. I wouldn't even want to look at David for the rest of my life. But David th thinks he's doing this guy a favor. See, here's the thing. We try to do this with sin, too. Oh, you know what? <clears throat> Excuse me. I did this horrible thing, and so I'm going to do some really nice things to, you know, to either make me look better, kind of make up for it, you know, I, you know, maybe I, I hurt this, hurt this person in, when I, in my 20s, and so now I try to just be kinder to people in my day, you know, I, I smile at the bus drivers, you know, I say thank you to the waitresses, wow, good job, it doesn't make up for our past, does it? Making amends doesn't change the past, no matter how many times you say you're sorry, it still happened. No matter how many good things you try to do to make up for it, it still happened. Making amends doesn't change the past. And so time goes on. David, David helps secure the borders of Israel. Saul hunts him. He has a couple, David has a couple chances to actually capture and kill Saul, and he doesn't take it because he's saying, no, I'm going to wait for God. He kind of got his, his ducks in a row there, and Saul and his sons die in battle with a group called the Philistines, kind of Israel's arch enemies at the time. Which, by the way, they just discovered doing DNA tests on, on Philistine graves that the Philistines probably emigrated from um, 
Eastern Europe, so like Greece area is where the Philistines. Anyway, nobody cares, but I do. That's awesome. So they had, they had European descent. Anyway, so Saul's, Saul and his sons die. David becomes king. He unites all the tribes of Israel into one nation. He defeats all the enemies on the border, and he enjoys a time of peace. There's no more. David, who had lived fighting, basically slept with a sword in his hand every night, now has peace. He's king. He's established. He's in Jerusalem, the capital of this new nation that everybody brought together. And so he's, he's sitting in his palace one day, and he says, he looks over at this, this tent that they had had ever since Moses had brought the Israelites out of Egypt, where they had worshipped God, and that was kind of, they called it the tabernacle, and there was this tent where they worshipped God. He's in his nice palace, and he looks over at this tent, and he's like, God deserves, I'm in this palace, and God's in a tent, we need to build God a, a temple. Every other culture around us has temples to their gods, we need a temple. If you'll read closely, God never asked for a temple, by the way. Anyway, side note. So David gets all his plans together to build a temple, and then the prophet Nathan comes to David, and uh, first he says it's a good idea, we're not talking to God, then God talks to Nathan and says, you know what, no, David's not the man to build the temple. He says, David, thanks, but no thanks, you're not the one to do it, it's not going to be you, I will have a temple, but you're not going to build it, but you wanted to do something for me, here's what I'm going to do for you, and he gives them an unbelievable an unconditional promise. Kind of out of the blue. Look, here, here's, here's that promise. Now this is God talking through Nathan to David. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Had you heard of David before you came here tonight? Show of hands. Anybody heard of David before? Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird that his name was great, like the names of the greatest men on earth? In fact, a few thousand years later, this guy made a big statue and called it David because David was still so famous. So God kept that promise. But he goes on. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. You wanted to build a house for me, that's cute. I'm going to build a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands." But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Forever. So God made some promises to David. First, his name would be great. Done. You've heard of him. It's 2019 and you've heard of this guy from ancient Israel. Next, his son would reign after him, and he would be the one to build the temple. Solomon, who was David's son, actually did build the temple, and it was considered, it's still something of legend of how great it was and, and magnificent it was. Kept that promise. And then God said his kingdom would endure forever, meaning that when, when Israel, if Israel ever had a king, it would be a descendant of David. Kept that promise. And later on, 
Jews would actually see this promise as promising the Jewish Messiah, the, the Savior, the one who would, who would come and, and make everything right in the world. They saw this promise that the, that Savior would come out of David's descendants. And they were right. See, that's, that's why when we read the, uh, the eyewitness account of Jesus' life that we call the Gospel of Matthew, that's why at the very beginning, the, the writer, Matthew, who was one of Jesus' followers, established Jesus in David's lineage. Saying that, hey, that promise that, that Israel's king would forever be from David's bloodline, this promised king, this Messiah, Jesus is that. And look at his bloodline. It comes all the way through David, just as God promised it would. That's why maybe you, you, you've heard the, uh, the Christmas songs, right? The, the angels at the birth of Jesus. That's why they, they made a point to say, today in the town of there you go, you've heard the day in the town of David, Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. Because the promise was that the Savior would come out of David's line. Now, when we, when we read that promise, were there any conditions on it? Hey, David, I'm going to do all these things for you if you. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll keep these promises when you. No. There are no conditions on it whatsoever. There's no if you then I will. Isn't that interesting? And God kept his promise to David, as we saw. But here's the thing. David didn't deserve it. David didn't deserve it. Maybe you've heard of a lady called Bathsheba. Maybe you haven't. You're about to. See, here's the thing. A few, a few years later, after this promise, after David's like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe it. He writes a song about it. It's in, it's in the book of Psalms. David wrote a whole bunch of those songs saying, God, I, I don't deserve it. This is amazing. Thank you so much for making me the guy to, to carry on this, this, this bloodline. And so he, he sends the army out to go fight. It's springtime. That's when armies in ancient Israel fought. He stays home. He's going to take this one out. Take it easy, right? Maybe his sciatica is acting up. So he stays home, and he's, he's walking around his palace at night, and he sees a young lady bathing next door, and he's curious about her. And so he asks his servants, hey, who's, who, who's that? And here's, here's what his servant says to him. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba. The daughter of Eliam, meaning David knew Eliam, Eliam was one of David's friends, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Basically he's saying, this lady you see bathing that you're curious about, she's the daughter of one of your friends and the wife of one of your best warriors, both of whom are out fighting in the war for you right now. David was like, cool, so nobody's home is what you're telling me. So he invites her over. They have an affair. Sends her home quietly. He knew better. It was no accident. He didn't just, whoops, mess up. He was told, point blank, she's married and she's the daughter of your friend. Don't do it, basically. Well, he did. Slept with her and she gets pregnant. Uh-oh. Because her husband's been away at war, right? The whole palace knows who came over that night. 
And so he tries to trick Uriah, tries, tries to fix the situation. He calls Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, calls him in, in from the war and says, hey, how's it going? You know, how's the battle going? Thanks so, much for, thanks so much for fighting for us. I support the troops. Why don't you go home? See your wife. You've been working hard. He refuses. He, refuses. he says, how could I go home and, and enjoy being at home, enjoy seeing my wife while everyone else is out fighting in the field? He's like, oh my gosh, this Boy Scout, just do what I told you to do. And so he invites him to, he says, hey, just stay one more night. And you know, here's some wine. Here's some wine. Here's some wine. Here's some wine. Tries to get him drunk, gets him drunk. And says, hey, go home. You know, see your wife. I'm sure she misses you. He sleeps on the doorstep of his house. He refuses to go in and see his wife and, and, and just enjoy being at home. And he was like, oh my gosh. This guy, making things hard. And so he writes the general that's over, over Uriah. And he says, hey, when Uriah gets back, put him on the front lines in the most dangerous spot, have him attack, and then pull everyone back without telling Uriah. Basically a death sentence, right? And so he, he writes this note, seals it with his, his wax ring or whatever, and sends it with Uriah to go give to his commander. And the commander follows orders, and Uriah is killed. But more importantly, Uriah is murdered. That was murder. And let's not mention this fake attack that David ordered the commander to do. I don't think just Uriah died that day to cover David's sin. So Uriah is murdered. He's killed. David abuses his power. And so the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David. Tells him this story about this man who had, you know, a whole bunch of sheep and stole one little sheep from this poor guy. And David realizes, or Nathan says, that story is about you. And David's like, oh my gosh. I've, 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 what, what am I going to do? What's, what's God going to do? And so um, Nathan tells him his consequences. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. See, there are consequences when we sin. Is it spiteful? No. But there's consequences. Every good parent has consequences. And here's what David does. He doesn't argue. He doesn't fight. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Here, let me offer these sacrifices. Here, let me, let me give this money. Here, let me do all these good things to cover up what I didn't know. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. See, the consequence in the Jewish law was that somebody who does that should be put to death. And God said, you're not going to die. What did David do to get that mercy, to get that forgiveness. Nothing. He couldn't make up for his past, right? It, the deed was done. So he relies solely on God's mercy and God's love. In fact, here's the thing. The only source of forgiveness and redemption is God's unfailing love. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can buy to get it. The only source of forgiveness, of covering those sins, of taking that guilt away, redemption, is God's unfailing love.
Now, usually when you hear people talk about David and Bathsheba, the story ends there. You're like, oh, you know, that's, that's hard, but, you know, it gets worse. It would be a soap opera if it wasn't a true story. In fact, it's, it's, it's so soap opera-esque that it can't be made up. See, here's what happens. David's oldest son, Amnon, a little bit after this, David's oldest son, Amnon, actually rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Falls in love with her. She wants nothing to do with him, so he, he, he does it himself. Here's David's response when his oldest son rapes one of his daughters. When King David heard all this, he was furious. That's it. He gets mad. Does nothing. He has all these, he has this emotion that he's mad, but he has nothing about it. He doesn't even confront his son about it. Anger with no action, no taking care of his daughter, no making sure nothing like that happens ever again. The, the, there was laws against that. There were consequences. He just like brushed it aside. For two years, Tamar's full brother, Absalom, write these down. It's, it's important. Don't have to write it down. Okay, so Tamar's brother, Absalom, waits two years for David to make it right with his sister. Two whole years. David does nothing. And so Absalom, Tamar's brother, has Amnon, David's oldest son, murdered. So a brother murders another brother for taking advantage of his sister. You can't make this stuff up. So Absalom runs away, flees, worried that David will actually finally try to kill him. Time goes by, Absalom comes back. Does David do anything? No, all David does is refuse to see Absalom. More intrigue happens until Absalom decides, you know what? Obviously David's weak. Obviously my father is weak. I should be king. I should take over. And so what he would do, he was very subtle, he would stop people on the road on their way to see the king, King David, who were needing a judgment, right? Hey, my, my neighbor stole my sheep and I want it back. And so they're going to the king to settle their disagreements. And Absalom would stop people on their way. And this is what he would do. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper. But there's no representative of the king to hear you. David doesn't care about you. And Absalom would add, he's so subtle, if only I were appointed judge in the land, wink, wink, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Wow. You mean David doesn't care about us, but you do? He did this for four years. So everyone who would come to David would now say, oh no, Absalom actually cares about us. And so Absalom starts a civil war. He actually... Uh, sacks Jerusalem, it forces David to flee, and this whole civil war actually ends with Absalom caught, caught by his hair in, in a forest, in a tree, and Absalom is murdered against David's orders. So now David has two murdered sons. The, there's a civil war. Hundreds of thousands of people have probably died, right? And it's all David's fault. He was a terrible father, horrible husband to his many wives. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He held himself and his family above the law of God. He basically squandered everything God had given him. And hundreds, of, if not thousands, like I said, died because of his choices. Look, if God had limits to his love, 
David would have blown him apart. He would have reached him so fast. If God had limits to his love, David would have pushed far beyond him, much further than you ever have, probably ever could. But here's the thing. God never took back his promise. He never changed his mind. He never took away his love from David. David's choices and behavior were never a surprise for God. It wasn't like David, David murdered Uriah and God's like, oh my gosh, I didn't see that one coming. He's the God of the universe. He knows everything. He never took back his promise. He never took back his love because it was never really about David and his behavior. See, David was given the promise based on nothing but God's love. He didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. He was given it only because God chose to, only because God loved him. And he received that promise. He kept that promise based on nothing but God's love. See, God's promises are based on his love. God's promises are based on his love. And the story ends so differently than we would expect. David and Bathsheba have a second son, whom they name Solomon. Solomon becomes king, and he leads Israel into its golden age. He builds the temple. Many believe him to be the wisest man who ever lived. In fact, he's the author of three books of the Bible. This this son, who probably shouldn't have ever been born, becomes this great ruler, this leader, writes parts of the Bible. In fact, like I mentioned earlier, when Matthew talks about Jesus' lineage coming from David, here's here's what he says about Solomon, David and Bathsheba's son. He says, it says, uh, descended from David, descended from Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew, many, many, many years later, points that out. He could have said Jesus was descended from David, the giant killer, the great king of Israel. Instead, he says, no, Jesus came from David and, Beth, or David and Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. He points out this glaring sin of David. This, this thing that, you know, normally we would say, you know what, that, let's just sweep that under the rug. I think Matthew, at the very beginning of his account of Jesus, is saying, look, this is proof that God, God's love is not based on our behavior. Look what God made happen because of this, in spite of this. Here's the thing. You might not have a lot in common with David. You've never been a king. You don't live in ancient Israel. You haven't had your, your son murder your son. I think like him, all of us, all of us have put God's love to the test. We've all broken his law of love in some way. Remember we talked about the 1,095 times you've sinned? We've all made promises to others, to ourselves, even to God, that we've broken over and over and over. We've purposely chosen to hurt others, purposely chosen to put ourselves and our feelings and our wants above other people's wants, feelings, and cares. Have you ever asked, how many times can I expect God to forgive me? How could he ever forgive or love someone like me. Here's the thing. If God's love could be lost, we would have all lost it years ago. 
Some of us would have lost it when we were toddlers. You definitely would have lost it when you were a teenager. If for somehow you still hung on to it, in your 20s, it would have been gone. If we could lose it, we would lose it. But your sin is not stronger than God's love. Your sin is not stronger than God's love. In fact, here's what the Apostle Paul says. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, not cleaned up, but still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you before you were for him. See, Jesus came to destroy the power of sin and its ultimate consequence, death, without destroying you. And his only requirement to have that redemption, to have that forgiveness, is to trust that he paid the penalty for you, that his death paid that penalty for you. That's his only requirement, is trust, because we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a free gift that we just have to receive. And when we do, when we choose to trust, we are adopted forever into his family, and we're given a new identity. No longer sinner, but as we sang, child of God, child of the king. And once you receive that identity, this is his unconditional promise that he will never change. Very truly, I tell you, this is Jesus talking, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. He says more. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Never. Your behavior cannot cancel God's promise. Your behavior is not stronger than God's promise. Do you know that if you're a citizen of the United States, you can't have your citizenship revoked for crimes? Once you're in, you're in. Do you think my kid's DNA changes when they disobey me? When they say, I hate you, even though they just learned the word hate three months ago? Do you think their DNA changes? They're no longer my kids? No. Their behavior has no bearing on their identity. So you're saying if I trust in Jesus, I can do whatever I want now, I can just hurt people, and God's going to be like, hey, I love you. I, I guess it, would, it could mean that. But if you actually become a child of God, here's the thing, your identity starts to transform. You start looking and acting and thinking like your heavenly father. You're not looking for loopholes of how you can get away with stuff. You're not looking to see, okay, how close can I get to sin with actually not getting in trouble? Because that's not the point. See, your motivation changes. It's no longer about fear. See, trying to skirt the rules is about being afraid of getting in trouble. But there is no getting in trouble with him. You want to do these. You want to love others because it bring, makes him happy. It makes him, it, it shows others his love, who he actually is. You want to please him. You want to be close to him. You want to be like him. See, when you follow Jesus, your life becomes love, not self. When you follow Jesus, your life becomes love, not self. And so it's not about trying to get away with stuff. So I want to ask you, kind of quickly, but also want to make sure that like, you are paying attention to this. So if you're watching online, turn up the volume. 
If you're here, forget that it's warm and wake up. Has there ever been a moment in your life where you accepted Jesus' offer? Saying, look, you can't change your past. We are all sinners. It's there. You did it. You feel the guilt. You, you deserve punishment. But I don't want you to go through that. I don't want you to have to carry that guilt. I don't want you to be separated from me. So I died for you. So you can just accept my forgiveness. You can accept a new identity. If there's never been a moment you've done that, you can say, yes, I have stepped over from, from sinner to child of God. I encourage you to, to make that choice. To actually have a moment where you said, however you say it with God, I want to follow you. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to be made new. I want my past to be washed clean. And when you look at me, you just see your child. I encourage you to make that choice. If you have made that choice, but there's life that's been going on, you feel like he's revoked his offer, revoked his promise of you being his child, you can't lose it. It's not based on your, it wasn't based on your behavior when you got it, and it's not based on your behavior now. It's based on his love for you, which is unchanging and unconditional. So God's love is yours to accept. God's love is yours to rely on, yours to enjoy. Despite what we might think about God, God doesn't hate you because of your sin. God loves you. He loved you so much he waded into the mess we made and he destroyed sin. And he has orchestrated human history. That's what we've, been, what we've been talking about. He's orchestrated human history in order to bring you, yes, you, the one he sees, into his family. You and your behavior have no power to change God's love. You're not stronger than him. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more because there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. Trust him. Rely on him. Believe his promise. Because when you discover God, you discover complete and unconditional love. When you discover God, you discover complete and unconditional love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are love. You are the definition of love. Unchanging, unconditional, unearned love. Show us what it means to be loved by you. Let us share that love with others. And let us just rest in who you are. Give us the courage maybe to accept it for the first time. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if, you, if that's a moment you say, you know what, I want to accept that love, or I, need, I want to talk to somebody about that, I want a little bit more information, we're going to have Patrick over here on the side, somebody to talk to. If you said, hey, you know what, I, I want that, I've decided that, mark your card, there's a card that says connect card in the front of your seat there. Mark that so we can talk to you, so we can kind of say, hey, that's what this is all about, okay? Hope you have a great week. We'll finish up this series next week. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a little bit of cooler air in here next week as well. Anyway, have a great week. See you later.